This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Central Station. Modern history is a fascinating subject in that it gives us something to look at that isn't changing, at least not in the way that something like technology is changing around us today. It's happened, and we can't make it unhappen. Now, you might say that the present is constantly happening and therefore creating history as we go. And yes, that's true. But what makes modern history so interesting for us is that you'd think we'd be able to learn from it as we navigate this changing world we live in. And part of that involves being able to form an opinion based on facts from the past. And that's what my guest today specialises in. Lubna Haddad runs PD courses for teachers through Teacher Training Australia, or TTA, where her special focus is on developing those higher order or critical thinking skills that help students form a view or take a position on historical events. Modern history is not just about knowing the historical timeline, and it's the ability to form these views and opinions that she thinks are so important, not only for gaining good exam scores, but also for being able to prepare themselves for their preferred futures. Lubna provides some practical advice for teachers and shares a bit about her own passion for modern history. And, as you might expect, we do end up talking about Germany in the 1930s. Lubna, thanks very much for joining us. I've always had a bit of a thing for modern history as well, but I'm not really sure why, but it's never really drawn me to want to teach the subject. What drew you to modern history? My year six teacher, I can remember it that far back. Well, wow, that's we going had, back a long way. <laughs> yeah, well, not that old. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> yeah, maybe, not, maybe not that far. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, her, her name was... Um, Mrs. Bull or Miss Bull and um, we were reading a novel for English and the novel was called I Am David by Anne Holm and uh, the novel is about a story of a young boy trekking across Europe through World War II uh, to get to his mum in the northern uh, part of Europe and so we had a map on the board and uh, we trekked his journey on that map and um, so every time he went through a new country or an area in the book, we would trek it and, and do a little blurb about it. And I've, I've never forgotten that, that lesson ever. And, um, and that conversation then tacked on to the fact that my dad used to talk about this guy called Rommel and, uh, and, how, and how he was known as Desert Fox. And oh, then wow. I, eventually I put the two and two together and realised it's the same war. It's, oh, know, okay, it, right. We're still talking about the Nazis, um, et cetera, et cetera, because the, the, the boy David fled from a concentration camp. So that, 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 that was the flame. And then I was lucky enough to have another amazing teacher in high school, my history teacher, who became my first boss. She gave me my first job. And um, I, did, I haven't looked back since. So all, all that way back in year six, though, did, did you realise what you were actually talking about? Did it have that much of an impact on you? In ter- in, like in, uh, not in terms of where you are now, but in terms of what it was at the time. Did you get a sense of what, uh, of what you were actually th- uh, talking about and thinking about? 
I mean, his story, it, it was a children's book, as you can appreciate, for a, a year six audience, but the themes were quite mature. And it was a, a basic human story about a child looking to find his family. Mm. And um, But it was also a story about how other people uh, just came in and helped where they could and took pity on him. And even the ones that were meant to be his enemies, like the guard in the camp, um, turned a blind eye to, you know, to him escaping and actually left him a little package in the forest which had soap, um, a little knife and uh, a loaf of bread. Right. And, 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 and that humanity was just so easy to tap into even at that age. And have you been on a uh, similar journey across Europe where you've uh, tracked your progress on a map and, uh, and looked back and said, <laughs> oh, look, I've done it. I mean, obviously not a similar trip like the story in mm. I Am David, but, uh, have, you know, have you yeah. done the, the Europe trip? I have done the Europe trip and um, I, I've immersed in German history since then. And so I have done, you know, areas that I've studied that, you know, I wanted to see for myself. Um, and, and Europe is a constant, you know, um, not as regular as I'd like it, a destination given I teach ancient history as well. Um, but, you know, it, it, I guess this, the most similar thing to that is I have one of those scratch-off world maps. So you scratch off a location every time, you know, you go see a, a new destination. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that keeps me, you know, motivated to work and keep earning money so I can go to the next special place. <laughs> so would you say that you have a favourite period of modern history? Is there something that you just keep coming back to? Uh, look, given I've done 17 years of teaching modern history and about 12 of those have been um, 20th century history, particularly uh, the 20s and the 30s, um, that's my go-to. Um, and and that's that's the one that I keep I keep going back to I keep reading up on because it's just an endless array of information and sources that keep coming out. Um, so that's been you know I, I guess dominated by the fact that it's one of the main periods in the modern history syllabus. Mm. Um, but the 20th century in general, whether it's you know conflict in Indochina or American civil rights or our own Australian 20th century all of it. So really, it's not so much age, a, a geographical location as much as it's a historical period, and that's the 20th century. Oh, that's really interesting. So do you find that uh, students particularly resonate with any, any time of history or any period of modern history more than others? It's the ones I guess popular culture promotes often that they are familiar with, um, whether it's music or film. Uh, so, you know, American civil rights is something that they're very familiar with. It's in hip-hop, it's in film, it's in dance, it's in fashion. Um, but I guess sadly the one that is so um, familiar to them is Hitler because he's just mentioned so often and he's taught so often and there are so many World War II movies. Yeah. Um, so sadly that's familiar to them. Um, but it's also an opportunity to go, okay, you know, he comes up often because he's not a very good guy. <laughs> and that's a segue to go, okay, why is this topic so prevalent in so many ways? And, and, that's, and that's been a privilege to teach to so many students in yeah. those 17 years. It's interesting, isn't it, that they, they become so interested in such a uh, – such a, uh, it's, a, it's a horrific part of history. I mean, it's, it's an absolutely awful, terrible time. 
and yet there yes. seems to be this this morbid interest. Do you do you ever talk to them about why they seem to have an interest in something that is so awful? Um, I think it's it, I think it's not so much interest because they uh, seek it out. I think it's because it's in their face all the time. So it becomes a point of curiosity more than anything. And, and, and funnily enough, when we do study 20th century Germany and we look at, you know, Germany uh, from World War I to the end of World War II and we do finally get to Hitler, they actually find the, the democratic period before Hitler even more interesting because of that amazing democratic experiment of the Weimar Republic. And that's when Hitler becomes really daunting and morbid and macabre because they they see that the opportunity that Germany had in the 20s was so amazing off the back of a horrible experience in World War One yet they go the complete opposite way and that's where their interest then lies and and plus of course you know the, the the horrors of the Holocaust are 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 part of you know of popular history of political history Remembrance Days, museums, etc. So that's also been quite a prevalent topic that they come across quite readily. It's interesting. Um, it's interesting that you make the comment that they seem to be interested in World War Two because it's in their face all the time. If mm. I could just segue slightly, something else that seems to be in their face all the time, or that their face may be looking at all the time, mm. is uh, things mm. like social media, mobile devices, and this. This constant mm-hmm. notion of connectedness. Um, yeah. If I can, if I can ask you, do you do you see that there's some sort of uh, an impact that that has on their perception of the past? Absolutely. The number of memes that Hitler is in, and you know, I don't know if you watch the movie Downfall. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that infamous infamous scene now where he, you know, he's having a dummy spit about the progress of World <laughs> yes. War II, the nine nine nine. I mean, the number of you know uh, spin offs that came from that way back, even when you know Michael Jackson died and supposedly Hitler hears the news of it, and you know they've ripped that scene to shreds from that. I think there's a huge danger in social media where Hitler seems cool and funny. And, and the younger generation that's coming through, that's been the digital, you know, internet generation where they've had it in their lives from birth, um, the prevalence of that kind of macabre humour has to be, from a teaching perspective, nipped in the bud. And I, and I found myself often in my last few years of teaching, drawing reference to that and saying, that's not funny and it's not funny because this is what this man did. How do the students respond to that, though? Because you say, look, these are the, these are the, uh, the, the, the parodies, the spin-offs. it's not mm. funny. But, mm. but I, I would imagine that students would look at that and say, well, what do you mean it's not funny? It's got nothing to do with us. Of course it's funny. Look at it. I mean, do, do you ever struggle or is there ever a struggle between you telling people that it's not funny and the students pushing back? I think because uh, we do Nazi Germany in year 12, I'm dealing with 17, 18-year-olds. So their understanding and cognitive <coughs> development is already more acute and more nuanced than, say, if we were to do uh, World War Two in year nine, where we have to anyway, but we don't do, you know, we don't do the Holocaust. We do it from an Australian perspective. So that struggle sometimes is not there at other times. Um they see my point 
but every now and then they find a, a funny meme and they go, come on, but that's funny. And so they try to, I guess, to make it lighthearted in terms of the humour without undermining its significance. Mm. Uh, but that does come with maturity mm. um, and the way you present something, I think. Well, that's interesting that you talk about maturity. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit from a slightly different perspective because you provide professional development courses for teachers, uh, mm. helping teachers to, to teach modern history uh, better. But you're, one of your particular avenues is through uh, critical or higher order thinking and you've just mm. described that year 12 students have uh, two or three more years of of that maturity than the, say the year nine, nine or tens yeah um, how do you how do you help teachers understand that critical thinking or higher order thinking has just that much more to offer in that sort of a context I guess because when you're teaching the HSC, you're driven by that end-of-year examination and you're driven by that ATAR and you're driven by what the markers are looking for at the marking centre. And so you have got to teach the higher-order thinking if you want those students to perform in the higher band, so the band five and the band six, which, you know, a band five is 80% plus and band six is 90% plus. So for, for you to get them to achieve to the best possible ability, um, you have to teach higher order thinking. And that always starts, and I always say it to, to the teachers that attend these workshops, is don't be afraid to teach them to have an opinion. Right. Okay. Can I, can I just jump in there? Because the thing that, I was, that I've thought, and this is a, a, a quite a naive observation, is, well, it's modern history. Everything that mm-hmm. has happened is there and we mm-hmm. can look back on what's happened. So yeah. wouldn't all the answers just be there? But now you're saying it's okay to have an opinion on that. So mm-hmm. so, so, am I hearing that students are marked on their ability to form a perspective based on the evidence? Spot on because, like you said, history's happened. Um, you can't change it. So what you can't change, though, are the facts. So Hitler came to power in 1933 you know, World War Two was this period, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're facts. But why he came to power is endless interpretation. And the students need to have an opinion as to why he came to power. So all those forces, all those dynamics that happened internationally and domestically, the people around him, you know, the division between left and right wing in Germany at the time, the Great Depression, they're all facts, but which one was more important to catapult him into power? And that's that higher order thinking skills. You give them the facts as a foundation and then you encourage that opinion forming and that thinking approach. And that's where the marks are at the HSC. Um, students are meant to have a judgment on a question that they're given. If they give a historical narrative, they're not going to get more than 15 out of 25 for an essay question. So if, if they're not engaging in perspectives and different perspectives and the origins of those perspectives, they're not reaching those higher-order thinking skills. I can't help thinking about a song, the Split End song, okay. uh, Hist- History Never Repeats. Never Repeats. <laughs> and, look, I know maybe that's a bit naive too, but, um, hey, look, what's not to like about Split Ends? Um, <laughs> do you think when the students go through that process of forming a perspective based on the facts 
that mm-hmm. they then have the ability at this age to be able to look to the present or maybe to mm-hmm. the near or immediate future and say, mm-hmm. well, based on the perspectives that I've been forming and based on the mm-hmm. facts and the things that I've learned, mm-hmm. here's what I think about the here and now and this should motivate me to whatever action. Do, do you get any of that? I get the fact that they start making connections so they start seeing that history is repeating, but it's just a different dress rehearsal. Um, so, for instance, when the whole, uh, you know, issue with Russia and the Ukraine and the attempts at annexation and, you know, Crimea and so on and so forth, I had a few of them email me and say, oh, this is looking like Germany and Austria, isn't right, it? Right, right. And, you know, and that's a moment of absolute pure pride where, you know, they've left your class. Not only have they remembered something they've learned, but they've made a connection to something that's happening around them. And that's when they do start having conversations and, you know, they're engaging in in civil and political discussion and and, and action sometimes, uh, whether it's anti-war protests or anti, you know, uh, mandatory detention of asylum seekers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so I find that they may not leave the classroom with that immediately, but it certainly starts to develop very shortly after. I mean, if we do look at some of the events going on at the moment, uh, Mm. the the world is a, well, it's a troubling place on on many levels. Do you, looking at how you've uh, helped teachers to help students work through the issues of the past and move Mm -hmm. into a life beyond school today, do you have hope for those students? Oh, absolutely. Look, and, and part of, I guess, the workshop content is, you know, whether I'm teaching civil rights in the 50s and the 60s or Nazi Germany in the 30s or, you know, Japan's imperialism in the same period, I always draw on current events so they can actually see the relevance and the connection between the then and now. So it's not just for the students. And so when I see my ex-students, uh, you know, and I'm in touch with a lot of them uh, simply because they want to stay in touch with me, which is absolutely magnificent. You know, they email me things that they've read. They they ask me if I'm going to a march. And even though a lot of the media says this is a, a you know, a, a lazy generation or an entitled generation, part of it, yeah, because they've had a lot given to them in, in much easier circumstances. But they're not as naive as a lot of people think they are. They're they're passionate about a lot of things. They're active about a lot of things. Um, It's it's whether you get them to that level, whether you like that spark somewhere along the line. And if you do, you've got them for life in an engaged way. That sounds very, very positive. Let me come now to the uh, the courses that you do with your teachers. I'm just trying to Mm -hmm. think about this whole idea of higher order or critical thinking what's a practical thing that you do with your uh, course participants that helps them to work through the concept of higher order thinking so i guess going back and, and i did think about that when we chatted before the podcast about you know what we may talk about and i thought oh okay what do i do that you know teaches higher order thinking so because quite often the magic in the lesson just happens mm. and you know it, it might you might get a strategy right there in the moment try it the next lesson and it'll completely backfire so I thought okay what is it that I do often to encourage that opinion forming and one of the simplest strategies that 
you know, I, I get the students to do and I and I tell the teachers to do, not necessarily get them to do it, is I have a scale on on the, on the wall that, you know, that says where you've got, you know, the zero in the middle and your plus one, plus two, plus three, minus one, minus two, minus three. And I always used to say to the kids, I'd give them a statement and then I'd say, where do you stand on that scale with your opinion? And they have to literally, and zero was never an option because it's just (laughs) sitting on the fence. And that's the same thing I'd say to them. Don't you dare ever give me in an exam a middle answer. I don't (laughs) want a middle answer. And that's what they want to do. They're so scared about that HSC exam. They want the safe answer, but that's not the one that's going to get them the mark. So it was an activity I would do often. Um, where I, you know, I'd give them a statement and, uh, you know, for example, if we were doing Nazi Germany, I would say um, Hitler solved uh, most of Germany's problems by 1935. So plus three, they ha- they strongly agree with that statement. And then I'll say to them, okay, if that's your opinion, you need to have a really good reason to support that opinion. And then the next student might go to minus two. And then they have to give me a historical fact to support that opinion. And then the minute, you know, the next student goes up and up and up and you see them on that spectrum in all different positions, it's amazing because they hear each other as well. And then I give them an opportunity to change their position based on a perspective they've heard. So you're bringing it out into uh, a physical, visual representation of what's going on inside their minds, which then becomes very visual and obvious to everybody else around them as well. Absolutely, because they don't. When, when I'm the one marking their essays, so those teachers that that come to my workshops are marking these individual responses. The kids never see each other's, or they might see their friends, um, or maybe two other essays, but not an entire classroom, and not in a in a way that is so quick to occur without compromising crucial class writing time, so to speak. And the minute they start visualising it and doing it, because learning by doing is a lot more powerful than learning, say, by just uh, watching or listening. Learning by doing is a lot more powerful. That lesson sticks and those opinions start to form about different areas of the content. I was just imagining what it would be like if I was a modern history teacher. I mean, I've been a technology Mm. teacher for 20 years but, yeah. but never a modern history teacher. And mm. I was just thinking, hmm, um, surely there'd be some kind of a text, but then modern history is, a, is kind of like, we know it's happened, but it's a, it's a very vibrant thing. And the internet mm-hmm. is now a, a source of incredible information. How do you yeah. help the teachers to produce resources or prepare resources when you've got this thing called the internet, which is just constantly throwing up new material? That's quite a... a a, a, a um, specific pedagogical question. So, <laughs> uh, so I guess one of the most daunting things for modern history teachers is when they open up the syllabus and there's like 19 or, or 15 syllabus dot points for one topic and they have 30 hours to do that work in. And, you know, I don't know what the technology syllabus was like, for example, if it was quite descriptive such prescriptive modern history is statements such as the social political economic and military developments in north and south vietnam by 1964 
that's really broad. Yeah, sure is. <laughs> right? Um, and so you have some teachers that look at that and they would spend hours, hours on that. And so what I do in those job, in, in those workshops is, is say to them, you've got to really focus on the key words in those syllabus documents. So if the, if the question is asking about the consequences of something or the development of something, don't go on a million tangents you only want consequences. Mm. The students should only know about consequences. So I get them to bring samples of the work that they have if they have done that unit or the program that they have. And I literally say to them, look at the activities you're doing. Are they targeting that key word in the syllabus? Are you actually teaching consequences or the course of history? Oh, that's a very interesting uh, distinction that you make there. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I guess I say to them, as I had to my students, history is causes, course, and consequences. The higher order thinking skills are causes and consequences. The course is the skeleton that you teach those two higher order thinking skills. And because teachers are such noble, dedicated people, they want those kids to have as much information as possible to, to get through that exam, but it's not the depth of, or the quantity rather, of the information. It's what you do with simpler information that fits in the demands of that syllabus and that higher order thinking. You can give them four pages about, you know, the rise of Hitler, but the question's why, not how. Mm. And so you've got to really refine all those resources. Now you've you've um, indicated that you've had some wonderful feedback. You know, s students writing to you and staying in touch with you and so forth, and that's that must be very mm. rewarding. What kind of yes. feedback do you get from the teachers who've gone through these workshops with you and then had similar experiences? Do they write to you as well? Uh, they do. Some write to me to ask for more feedback <laughs> and just more tips, which is great because I'm more than happy to help. Um, and sometimes they throw me a curveball that I really have to sit back and, 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 and reflect on. But they do come back and say it's work. So the example I gave you about the scale, the opinion scale, mm. they, they, they write back and they say it worked. Initially it was slow, but the kids got used to it and they started to use it more often. But that also then translates to the writing activity. So if they're doing a writing activity and I ask them to evaluate or assess something, they have to draw a scale on a paper. Where do they sit on that question? And so the, the, the most common feedback I get is those skills are working, that approach is working, um, or the way I guess I phrase certain concepts um, where I simplify certain concepts. And so, you know, the teachers in the workshop write them down, go back to the classroom, try it, and they go, oh, my God, that actually worked. Oh, wow, that's good. So that's really cool. Other times, you know, if, especially if they're new to the topic, um, they still say, look, I'm still refining, but I'm getting there. Can you have a look at this? Sure. Is this assessment task too much? Is it off tangent, et cetera? And so that's that's really good, you know. It's collegial exchange, and um, it's it's as rewarding as the kids staying in touch with me. Well, it sounds like you've got so much interesting content to talk about, and look, <laughs> modern history. I mean, you could, as you say, it goes on forever, really, in terms of how you, yes. want to, how, you how you talk about it. But it sounds like you're doing some fantastic work with teachers and students. Lubna, it's been so great to speak with you this evening. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Colin. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Central Station. 
If you found this discussion helpful and you'd like to know more about Lubna's courses, then you can get in touch by visiting the Teacher Training Australia website, tta.edu.au. Lubna offers courses on topics including the civil rights movement in the USA, 1945 to 1968, conflict in Indochina, and Germany, 1918 to 1939. And to hear more interviews with educators making a positive difference, make sure you subscribe to Central Station on your favourite podcast app. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you like to listen. This podcast is brought to you by Central. To find out more, visit the website, central.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.